Okay, we're live. Sergio said one minute till. He's he's a minute late. Sorry, Sergio. We're we're live, buddy. Okay. Let's, yes, we are. Go ahead and go. Outside, divide, have, cutting in half, tent wall. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and I have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your command. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, they will not forget your law. I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Okay, now that was... David was old when he said that because he had to get up and go to the bathroom with midnight there. Yes, he had to... Yeah. That's it. And I rise in, rise in the middle of the night. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's see what we got here. Oh. Uh, today is, uh, anybody know what today's date is? 27? 27. 20, okay. And the month is August. Okay. August 27th. We're, oh, just lost it that quickly. Dang it. Now I got to find August 27th again. Sorry about this, folks. I should have that uh, marked, but I like the excitement of not having it marked. Okay. Um, he was a man of conviction and it cost him his job. The Lord gave me an attentive ear and heart to understand preaching. The Lord showed me my signs and reconciliation by Christ. And this word was more sweet to me than anything else in the world. So reads the testimony of Henry Dunster, born in 1609 in Bury, England. After receiving bachelor and master degrees at Cambridge University, he was ordained as a minister in the Church of England. As he served in his church, Dunster became increasingly disheartened by the corruption in the church and by its persecution of Christians who didn't conform to the Church of England. As a result, he fled to America in 1640. Dunster's scholarly reputation, especially his expertise in Oriental languages and Latin, had preceded him to America. On August 27, 1640, shortly after arriving in Boston, Dunster was unanimously elected as the first president of America's first college. Anybody know what the first college in America was? Yeah. Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> the college had been struggling without a president for four years since its founding, but during the years of Dunster's administration, the college flourished. He established the rules of administration and admission, set degree requirements, strengthened the curriculum, erected buildings, attracted students, and taught full-time. He was a tireless fundraiser for the school, and although he himself was poor, he gave 100 acres of his own land to the college. The Baptist movement was making slow progress throughout the New England at the time, and those who were leading the movement endured persecution in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Dunster was troubled by this intolerance and began to investigate their arguments in support of believers' baptism. The more he studied, the more convinced he became of the Baptist's position. Obviously so, because that's what the Bible teaches. By 1653, he was so strongly opposed to infant baptism that he refused to have his fourth child baptized. Good job. This caused quite a stir within the Harvard community. Because of the controversy, he offered his resignation, but it was refused. Dunster was such a beloved and respected figure within the Harvard community that if he had been willing to keep silent regarding his view of baptism... He would have been able to keep his position at Harvard indefinitely. 
But he was a man of conviction and became so thoroughly convinced of the truth of believers' baptism that he preached a series of sermons against infant baptism. On one occasion, he even disrupted a baptismal service in the Church of Cambridge. For this latter incident, he was indicted by the grand jury, found guilty of disturbing public worship, and was sentenced to receive a public admonition. Under these circumstances, Harvard was too embarrassed to have Dunster remain as president, and so on October 24, 1654, they accepted the resignation they had previously rejected. He had served Harvard as president for 14 years. Dunster spent the last five years of his life as a pastor of the church at, I can't pronounce it, in the Plymouth Colony. The church's previous pastor, Charles Chauncey, succeeded him as president of Harvard. Dunstan held no animosities from this experience. At his death, he bequeathed legacies to several of the people at Harvard who had called for his resignation. Henry Dunster realized it was a great honor to be the first president of the first college in America. Yet, he'd be turning over in his grave right now if he knew what was going on at Harvard. But anyway, yet he was removed because of his convictions. He didn't bear a grudge against his opponents. How prone are you to holding grudges? How do you feel about those who have wronged you? Can you graciously forgive them? Leviticus 19.18, never seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. Good stuff there. And then we have, um, there's a need for an audio Bible for Ronnie and the Project. So if anybody in Sarasota has an uh, audio Bible they don't listen to anymore, please bring it by the church and, and uh, we'll make sure that Ronnie gets that down there. And I'll try to remember to mention that again on Sunday, but we need to get him one. And I don't really have any prayer requests. I didn't write them down. I've had a miserable week, but uh, uh, we uh, will remember just all the people in general at the end of the at the end of the class, or right now as we go to prayer, and the people that we have in our lives that are uh, not saved. We want to remember them, and also um, you know we've got uh, Pat and Cindy. They can't come here because of Pat, and uh, until things are better, if they ever are, they've got to be at home. And we've got some other people that don't come to the church because they're worried about uh, getting infected. So uh, we want to remember them, too, because they're on my mind every day. And so here we go. Heavenly Father. Charlie, yes. Just a quick update on Dale. Okay, your brother? Yes. After 10 hours of surgery, everything came out all right. Good. Oh, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the uh, good news on the surgery for Dale. That is really fantastic. And we pray that the... Uh, Pain will be gone this time after all of these surgeries he's had and all the difficulties he's faced. We're very thankful to hear good news on that. And uh, we'll pray for just quick healing and uh, maybe doing handsprings soon. And Lord, we uh, also want to pray for those that can't come to the church and we miss them. And we certainly uh, would ask that you would just be kind and favorable to them in their hearts and uh, in whatever they do throughout the day, that they'll just have happiness and joy in their heart and be holding close to you, even if they're not in a fellowship at this time. And then we want to remember anybody that is uh, sick, that is struggling with whatever uh, ailment they have, whether it's a physical sickness or a mental or a, you know, emotional or financial, whatever's burdening them, we want to lift them up right now as well. And then we also want to lift up the people in our lives that don't know Christ yet. And that's a burden on our own hearts, but it's certainly a greater burden in their life that they don't even realize they have. So we want to lift them up, Lord. And then finally, we want to just pray that uh, whatever is said in this class today, it would be appropriate and in accord with your word. And if something is said which is not, that that would be alerted to the people that listen, whether they're here, or whether they're online, or even later someday listening to YouTube, that it would be 
you would graciously alert them to the error of my teaching and uh, uh, lead them to a correct uh, analysis of whatever it is. But we would pray that's not the case. And we certainly would pray that you would be glorified through this class. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. No, not, never heard a thing. And I assume that they would say something if, you know. So what was that, Burke? Add America in there. Prayer. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll lift up our president before we close. We'll try to remember to do that because, uh, you know, I try to post a uh, prayer for him once a week on Facebook. And, yeah, uh, yeah so I, I think I did that last night, was it? I, I didn't so, see it. I don't know. I, it might have been two nights ago, but I did post something for our president because he's a good guy. He's, he's a good guy. And he gets, you know, the thing that upsets me the most is not is not the people that don't like the president in this nation. It's the Christians that refuse to vote yeah. for the president in this nation. That It's unacceptable. We've got a, a real valley between good and evil right now. And we're not helping anybody by saying, I'm going to be more pious than you and stay home and not vote, when literally the, the foundations of this nation are being completely undermined before our eyes. But that's just me. That's just where I stand on it. So. <laughs> 600 million other people. Yeah, well, we would hope so. Yeah, all right. Well, here we go. We're in uh, Galatians 3, and then we're starting in verse 6 today. So Cons knock yourself out. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, that was short. That's all he wrote. Okay. It was so short, I didn't even read the verse. So um, I should probably read it again just to make sure that it's, you know, uh, this one says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Sounds pretty much the same. What's that, Burke? Read Genesis 15 and whatever. Genesis 15, verse 6. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, I, I am certain of that. I'm absolutely certain of it. In the previous verse, Paul asked a question of the Galatians. That was verse 5 last week. Now in verse 6, and because of the obvious nature of a proper response, he skips the answer entirely. Instead, he simply moves into an illustration of the answer. The illustration is not from the time of the law, but rather from the time before the giving of the law. Okay, remember that. Abraham was here, the law was here, and then Paul is down here. So the law is something in between the two of them because Paul calls this the dispensation of grace. There you go. Okay, so there you go. Uh, so obviously, if he's going back to Abraham, he's going back to before the law. The illustration is not from the time of the law, but from before the giving of the law. Further, it involves the great man of faith to the Hebrew people, Father Abraham. And so in his illustration, he begins with, just as Abraham. If one were to pull out any example of faith in God and in his promises, Abraham is the logical person to choose. The record of his life demonstrates a reliance on the Lord at a time when such reliance was unknown to the ancient world. But you know what? It does say that Abraham was where when he was called? Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? And it even says, if I can find this, I don't know if I'm going to refer to it, but we want to make sure that we have our, and I'll probably say it later in Galatians, but I may not. So really quickly, let me see if I can find this. It's probably about Joshua 24. And I just want to make a point, so I don't want anybody to get upset at this and say blah, blah, blah. But, um, his family was heathen. What's that? That his family was heathen? That his family was heathen. Was heathen. That's exactly right. It says, um, we want to see if we can find this. It, it's, yes, it's uh, Joshua 24. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers... 
including Terah, who is Abraham's father. Yeah, okay. And Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So he doesn't say Abraham explicitly, but we know that Abraham was a part of that because he came from Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, we'll go on a little bit. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river. So we have kind of a play on words there if you know what the uh, meaning of Eber is. That's the generation that did the moving. Okay, Eber means to cross over. That's his name. And the Hebrews come from Eber, and they are the ones that crossed over. Okay, so they crossed over from Ur. They crossed over the river, but they also crossed over spiritually because Abraham in Genesis 13 is called Abraham the Hebrew. Okay, so there's, you have to kind of understand the puns, or I guess that's the best word for it that's going on. What? you got something in mind. Does that go back to Ham also, Eber? No, 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 no. Ham is, uh, Ham is the Noah. son of Noah. Eber comes later. He's in the line of Shem. Shem. Yes. Okay. I just read that last night. Okay, well, they, you, then you, you just had too much reading, and your, your mind was con, uh, jumbled up. Yes, jumbled up with it, but... Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's in the line of, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, that's my mother. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just saw, I couldn't see who it was coming through the door. Yes, yeah, she, she will throw a sponge at me. Um, okay. So anyway, um, so now we understand the context is that Abraham is the man of faith, but he came from a place of no faith. He came where they served other gods. Okay. That's Joshua 24. I think it was verses two and three. If you want to go check that. Anyway, here we are. Um, it's, he's the logical person to choose. The record of his life demonstrates a reliance on the Lord at a time when such reliance was unknown in the ancient world. And because of this, the example Paul will show that a precedent had been set which preempts righteousness coming through the law. This is what he's going to do. He's going to show that righteousness has nothing to do with the law of Moses. It was preempted completely. Uh, instead, it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed and he was declared righteous, okay? That's before the time of the law. The reason why he's doing this, because we need to go back and consider the context, is that in chapter 1, Paul says, I can't believe you're departing from the message I gave you. And then he says, if anybody comes and he presents a gospel other than the gospel we gave, he doesn't care if it's an angel in heaven or we ourselves, he says, let him be accursed, okay? And he says it again to stress it. He says, let him be accursed. And he's going through this, these points saying that you... Do not go back to the law. He's being very methodical about this as well. And as I said, we could have stopped with a verse back in chapter 2 and just ended, and it would have been enough for most people. But apparently it's not enough for everybody. So we have the whole book of Galatians, which we're going to go through still, and even then it's not enough. People want to cling to their own righteousness by doing something to please God, and God rejects that. He rejects that every single time. There is no thing that God didn't create. There's no thing that we can give him, nothing except faith. We can't see God. He's not visible to us. And so when he, we acknowledge that he's there, we're acknowledging that in faith. And then further, we don't have Jesus with us right now. What we have is this book that tells us about Jesus, okay? We are, as Jesus himself said to Thomas, you know, blessed are you who believe, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so the whole Bible is based on faith. It's based on faith, okay? So we'll go on. That's the context, is that Paul is trying to get the 
thinking straight in the minds of the Galatians. Okay, and I've lost my place. Um, as the law was still hundreds of years later in history, 430 years from the time of Abraham when he was first given the promise all the way down to the law, which Paul will explicitly state pretty soon, but it was hundreds of years later in history, then this demonstrates that righteousness is not something granted by the law. If he was granted righteousness apart from the law, then it shows that this is the standard and proper way for people to be saved in this manner at any and at all points in history. Okay, the law he explained in Romans, he explains it a little bit here. He gives several reasons for the giving of the law, and he's going to explicitly say a couple of them, I think, in this chapter, chapter three. But I won't get ahead of myself then because I'm pretty sure it's this chapter, but there are reasons. Uh, one of them he doesn't give in this book. He, I think it's in Romans where he says it's to show how utterly sinful sin is. That's right, okay? Uh, or some versions say how exceedingly sinful sin is, etc. That's one of the reasons. If, okay, let me stop and we'll just go back to the Garden of Eden and make it simple. I think I brought this up last week, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but Adam is in the Garden of Eden, okay? God said you can eat of any tree that is in the garden, any tree, okay? If he gave no qualifier, which he did give one qualifier, but if he gave no qualifier, then Adam could walk up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he could eat it, and sin could not be imputed, right? But he gave a qualifier. He says you can eat of every tree of the garden, mikol etz hagan, anyway, uh, of every tree of the garden, you may eat except the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he gave that qualifier, it means that if Adam disobeyed, only he's got a whole garden full of all kinds of tasty delights. He's got all of this wonder in front of him. And instead of wanting to eat those, the first thing he does is he looks at that tree and he says, I've got to have that fruit. I mean, he probably made a beeline to it once the devil talked to him. I mean, it was just, it's our perverse nature. But if he didn't give that law, then sin could not be imputed. But as soon as the law was introduced, sin came through the law, okay? And that's the point, one of the points of the law of Moses is to say, this is my standard. God doesn't expect us to meet that standard. I know people say they do today, but he gave us that standard and he said, this is my standard. The man who does these things will live by them, okay? That's right. Can anybody do the things of the law? No, absolutely not, okay? So the law was a instruction manual, as Paul will call it in this chapter, a tutor to lead us to Christ. It might be chapter four. Anyway, that was one of the reasons. The other one is to show how exceedingly sinful sin is. We got one command and we blew it. We get 613 commands in the law and it shows us how exceedingly sinful sin is. We keep blowing it and we keep blowing it and we keep saying, how am I ever gonna get out of this pit? That is when we by the tutor, it grabs us, it takes us by the hand, and it says, right there, at the foot of Calvary. That is the purpose of the law. There's three or four purposes, that's two of them right there. But that is what I'm trying to convey to you, is that without a law, sin cannot be imputed. If Adam didn't have a law, sin could not have been imputed. And Paul says, now, because we are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19, we are not being imputed our transgressions, or as I think it's the NIV says, God is not counting our sins against us because we are not under law. We are under grace. So the logic is, if you want to go back under law in any way, shape, or form, then you are now 
asking to have sin imputed to you because you're not going to meet that law. That's the point. That's where we're at. Um, so before the first law, right. don't eat from that tree. Right. Did sin exist? Well, it existed potentially, but there was no way to have it actualized. Without a law, sin cannot be actualized. Okay. okay. Now, Adam could sit down there if he's in the garden for 400 years, and he says, well, I wonder what would happen if God told me not to eat, you know, of this tree or that. And then he could know that it exists, but probably not even that because it says he would have no knowledge of good and evil because he ate of that that fruit. So it may not have, you know, that, that's... That's interesting, too, because if it's a tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil, it had to exist. Was, well, that's right. Yeah, it was well, there. It, it was just it was not. It, it, all it did was it was it actualized in him the knowledge of good and evil. And you know, somebody sent me a, a letter today, and I got to answer that. But that was one of their questions. It says, you know, people are always saying that that uh, God said um, in the Garden of Eden that um, uh, let me take you there really quickly because it bears on what we're looking at. We might as well. The reason why I'm asking this is that um, it, it, it was. It, Adam just was the, where it was addressed. It's like, you know, it would eventually have to be addressed if sin existed. Well, that's so right. But it, like, like it says, he had no knowledge of good and evil, so he wouldn't have known. Right. But the whole point of this is that God knew that this would occur. Right. And he knew right. it would occur very quickly. And without having an understanding of who God is and our relationship to him, there could never be that intimate fellowship. Mm -hmm. they, they had face-to-face -face fellowship. That's obvious from the, the context of it. But, yeah, with, with the Lord, it says, in the garden, there's no doubt they had that, that fellowship, but that was severed when sin entered the world. But they could not appreciate what they had. You can't understand good without knowing bad. You can't understand uh, what uh, salt is unless you taste salt and compare it to bitter. If all you ever is given is salt, then that's all you'd ever know. So contrast is what makes us understand things. But the question that this person asked and this is a good question. I'll answer their. I don't think they watch the Bible studies. They just sent me a letter. But uh, uh, it said, um, um, where is it? Um, the serpent said, um, now the serpent was more cunning uh, than, and he said to the woman, blah, blah, blah. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, the serpent uh, said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of uh, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the uh, answer is, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, well, there's two things to consider, and their question was based on uh, that answer there. Okay, there's two things to consider. Did the devil lie? Yes. Yes, and? He, he yes and, and no. Yes and no. Right. Here's why. Wait, wait. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That was a lie because God said on the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. Now, somebody could say that Adam lived 930 years, and so it's not true. But God wasn't speaking of physical life. He was speaking of the spiritual connection between God and man. That was severed. He died spiritually at that time, and that is what Christ came to reverse. And that is what Paul speaks of in the book of Romans. But he also told the truth. He said here, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does it say right at the end of the chapter? It says right here, right at the end of the chapter, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know 
good and evil. So he mixed truth with lie, sin entered the world, and here we are stuck in these bodies that have pains all day and people kill each other and, you know, all the terrible things that happen. But the devil will twist the simplicity of what God says so that we get confused over it. And that's why we need to be very careful when we evaluate the word of God is to not add to it. We need to not twist it in any way, shape, or form. But this is what happened in the garden. They now have the knowledge of good and evil, and we cannot handle that responsibility. That is evident right from the beginning, and it's all the way through the Bible. We cannot handle that responsibility in relation to a holy God without Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, the law is still hundreds of years later. It demonstrates righteousness is not something granted by the law. If he was granted righteousness apart from the law, then it shows that this is the standard and proper way for people to be saved in this manner at any and at all points in history. Paul's quoting of this passage from Genesis is that of the Greek translation of it. It is the same quote that he made and with the same intent as in Romans 4, 3, that of the timing of God's declaration of righteousness. Not only was Genesis 15, verse 6 prior to the giving of the law, but it also came several chapters and many years before the sign of circumcision. Genesis 17. Okay, you've got Genesis 15. Yeah, no, Jonah's way, way later. We've got, we've got Genesis 15, and no sign was given at all. It was many years later, like I, I think I figured it one time, it's like 20-some years later, 25 years later, whatever. It was way later, and I may be wrong on that, so don't make a squiggle in your brain. But um, uh, it, later, later came the sign of circumcision. Now, that's important because Paul is going to now use that sign as his benchmark for the rest of the book of Galatians. He hasn't used it yet, but he's going to introduce that, and circumcision is his benchmark. Circumcision is what was asked Actually, it was instructed and required of Abraham. Every male will be circumcised in his flesh, in the flesh of his foreskin, on the eighth day. Any male that is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin on the eighth day will be cut off from his people. And then later that became a precept in the law of Moses itself. That's why uh, Jesus said that Moses gave you circumcision. And then he qualifies it. He says, not that it was given by Moses it came through Abraham, but it became a standard in the law of Moses as well. So not only is it required of the Hebrew people, but it's also required by the law itself. And so Paul is going to use that standard in the book of Galatians. Okay, Paul's quoting of this passage. What? You passed over it so quickly, I want to emphasize it. Don't say it, because I may not have finished yet. No, what are you no, looking no, for? No, no, no. It, it, it said, I think, could be saved through all history, you said. Okay. Okay. People ask, are, were they saved different in the Old Testament than they are in the New No, Testament? never. No, and I will get to that. I assure oh, you, I will get, yes, I, I assure you. But, but you said it just a minute ago. Oh, okay. Over in all know. history, there is only one way to be saved. Yeah, okay. Only one. And it starts, actually, believe it or not, right in the Garden of Eden. Before they're expelled, the premise of being saved by faith is given right in the Garden of Eden. Adam was saved by faith. Okay, does anybody know the, the account where it says that, exactly why? He was saved by faith in the Garden of Eden even before they were expelled. Okay, we'll take you there because you want, you want proof of that. And I'm glad you did that. Yeah, chapter 3. Okay. In chapter 3, the salvation of Adam is implicitly given. Okay, he's given the curse. First it says um, 
the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? And then in verse 12, it says, that man said, the woman, we'll go down a little bit. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? She kicked the can down to the serpent. So now it's the serpent's fault, which it is, okay? And then the Lord God cursed the serpent. That's the first thing he does after that. Then he says in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. The proto-evangelium, which is the first gospel, is given right then. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Faith in that verse right there is what saved Abraham. That verse, and I'm going to show you how. Give me a minute. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A promise of a deliverer is made in Genesis 3. Once that promise was made, anybody that believed in the coming Messiah and exercised faith in him is going to be saved. Okay, they're saved in the same way. They're not saved by the law. They're saved by faith in the coming Messiah. Okay, so... The, and the law anticipates the coming Messiah. So those people that were under the law that uh, observed the Day of Atonement were granted that release from sins because it anticipated the coming Messiah. Then it goes, um, then to Adam he said, and then he curses Adam, okay? Then he gets down to, so he's cursed the serpent, then the, he says that the woman, and then he gets down to Adam, and it says in verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve. Hava, life, because she was the mother of all living. <clears throat> that was his demonstration of faith. By naming her life, knowing that a Messiah would come and restore life, God imputed it to him for righteousness. How do we know that? Because it says in the next verse, and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them, a picture of being covered in Christ's righteousness. He demonstrated faith. He called her name Hava, the mother of all the living, before they had any children at all, and with the promise that life would come through the child. Grace through faith, even in the Garden of Eden, before they were kicked out. Yeah. Okay, so there you go with that. But that was a good point that you made, and I, I'm sure I'm going to get to that, but we wanted to get it out of the way. From Adam all the way to the last person that will ever be saved, it is by grace through faith, no other way. Okay, um, let's see here. Paul's quoting of this passage, Genesis 15, 6, from Genesis is that, oh, I've already read that. I'll read it again. From the Greek translation of it. It is the same quote that he made and with the same intent as in Romans 4, 3, that of the timing of God's declaration of righteousness. Not only was Genesis 15, 6 prior to the law, the giving of it, but also it came several chapters and many years before circumcision. That's where we left off. Circumcision was mandated in Genesis 17 when Abraham was 99 years old and when Ishmael was... 13. That's right. However, Genesis 15 was prior to the conception and birth of Ishmael. Therefore, the declaration of righteousness was at least 14 years. I knew it was in here somewhere. Possibly more. Further, Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, and which is noted in James 2, came many long years after that. So he's been declared righteous. He has the sign of circumcision, and yet James says that we're saved by works. And what does he do? He cites the account of Abraham. But guess what? Hebrews comes before James, and in Hebrews it says, by faith, Abraham offered Isaac. The exact same example that James argues is a work is a faith. So it is a work of faith. It's not a work of earning merit. It is a work of faith. And the same thing is true with Rahab the harlot. He says, and look at Rahab the harlot. That's the same example that the author of Hebrews, which comes before the book of James, says 
that by faith, Rahab the harlot hid the spies. And so it's always a faith, always. We cannot add works in as Roman Catholicism does or some Christian denominations and come to a saving relationship with God. We cannot do it. We must come to him with no strings attached to the gospel. If we do add anything to the gospel, and I don't care what it is, you can't be a Democrat or you won't be saved, okay? Or you can't be ugly or you won't be saved. Yeah, well, as I said on Sunday, it's very difficult for me to believe that there are many of them out there, but you can be a Democrat. That is not a qualifier. of. And guess what? You know, the thing is, put it this way, suppose somebody is a Democrat and they hear the message of Jesus. They haven't changed their status yet, but they are saved when they believe in the message of Jesus. And then hopefully they say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to be responsible with it. And I'm now going to get away from this den of wickedness. But that is secondary. That has nothing to do with salvation. So we got it. Jesus himself said, and this is the work. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. John 6, 29. Is that right? Okay, John 6, 29. This is, oh, he was going to read it. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. And as a matter of fact, it was yesterday or the day before. Let me take you there because you cited that. There's something that we need to know about that. It's from Revelation chapter 2. I don't want to get too far away from where we're at, but you brought this up. In Revelation 2, we're in the Revelation daily commentaries I'm writing and posting. I typed on um, Revelation 2, verse, um, uh, uh, where is it? This is the angel of the church at Ephesus. So it's in um, Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which was taken away. We saw that just a few minutes ago. To the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so I'm going to do a diversion from the main subject of Revelation uh, 2, verse 7, and I'm going to insert what it means to overcome, which is kind of tied to what you said there. I may have even cited that verse, but to overcome in the Bible is very specific, and I'll insert that into the commentary, or I have done it, and you'll read it in 10, or 10 days or so. Um, uh, whenever that commentary comes out, then you can read that. But to overcome, if you want an advanced uh, knowledge of what that means is go to my commentary on 1 John, where he talks about overcoming. And that's I, all I did. It was very uh, uh, deceitful or, or not deceitful. What's the word? Sneaky of me. I cut and pasted my commentary from 1 John 5 into the Revelation. And that's why I offset it. It's because people that have read my commentaries have already read that. And you know what it means to overcome. But there are people that have never read any of my commentaries that are now reading the Revelation commentary. And Jesus says, whoever overcomes, I'll give this. Well, what does that mean? And so I put in a, a large section of there. And uh, so it looks like I did a lot of work that day. The commentary is like 20 pages long. Maybe not that much. But anyway, it's long. It's only because I did the old not cut and paste, I did the copy and paste. Anyway, um, but that will be something that will be beneficial to people because it all comes back. Even when it says he who overcomes, it makes it sound like we have to do something. Overcoming, it has something to do with something, but it's only in the regards to faith. Okay, so um, circumcision, I read that. Because Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness prior to either of these acts, meaning prior to offering Isaac on uh, Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, and even prior to circumcision in Genesis 17. Prior to either of these acts, as well as prior to the giving of the law, 430 years later, or by this time it's about 400 and, uh, XX years later, not quite 30, 
but that none of these things, circumcision, offering Isaac, or the law, none of these things could have any bearing at all upon his declaration of righteousness. None. Abraham believed, and he was righteous. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was witnessing to a Jew one time, and I said, if you allow me to do this, I will never pester you about it again. And he said, okay. And I said, I will give you the choice. We can talk about righteousness. We can talk about um, uh, how to be saved. We can, I gave him about six different choices. And I said, which one do you want to know about? And he said, I want to know righteousness because it's something that Jews will want to know. They're taught all of their life that they're the righteous ones. And so I went there and I took him right back to Abraham. And I said, well, what does this mean? And he was like, well, I can't answer that. Well, it's right there. You don't need to answer anything. He was declared righteous. There was no law. And so obviously your righteousness that you're clinging to in the law of Moses cannot be what's pleasing to God. And then he did not process that, but at least he was told it. So, okay, um, all of that came before. As a side note, this verse completely and entirely demonstrates that the doctrine of regeneration held to by Calvinists is, begins with R and ends with G, has an O-N in the middle, wrong. That's right. Um, faith which comes from within the man results in justification. A man is not regenerated first in order to believe as if God were injecting him with something externally in order for the act to occur. Further, to demonstrate that faith is not a work, because some people will say it's a work, we can contemplate the following argument. One, deeds of the law or works do not lead to justification. Everybody got that? Deeds of the law, meaning works of any kind, do not lead to justification. Paul notes that in Romans 3, verse 28. Okay, then from there, 2a, faith is not something required within the context of the law. The law is of works, and it demands perfect obedience. Everybody got that? Okay, that's Romans 3, 19 and 20, and Galatians 3, verse 11, which we'll be at very soon. 2b, but by faith, a person is justified and declared righteous. That's Romans 3, 28 again, and Galatians 3, verse 24. And then verse, I'm sorry, point three. Therefore, because the law demands works, and faith is not a requirement under the law, then faith cannot be a work. Because people will say, well, faith is a work. It is not. It is excluded. It is something entirely different. Everybody got those points, or shall I read them again? But just to be clear, I understand fully what you said then and what you said before. You said okay. they were works of faith. Right. Those are works of faith. That's completely different. Okay. That is something that happens when you are in Christ. It cannot happen before because your works cannot be of faith if you don't have faith in Christ. Correct. Works of faith only apply when you are in Christ, not before. They cannot. They cannot. Okay. It is completely evident, fully supportable, and biblically correct to note from this one verse that one, belief is an act of the free will of man. We are not regenerated in order to believe. We are given free will, and we use that or do not use it to our salvation or to our condemnation. Two, it is not placed in man through a nebulous process of being regenerated in order to believe, by which he then believes. And three, this faith is in no way considered a work. And I don't know why we have to 
type up a commentary it. on that and even say it. But these are things that people argue over as if they're some philosophical standard that God has given that is more complicated than any of us can realize. And that's why I say the gospel is simple, it is pure, and it is never to be adulterated in any way, shape, or form. The gospel is Christ died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner. He went into the grave, meaning he was really dead. He rose again, proving that he had no sin, and he is God. And then you appropriate that, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is it. We cannot add to it any pet peeve that we have on this planet. Like, once again, I've seen people say, if you don't read the King James Version, you can't be saved. I've seen people post that, okay? You cannot be saved apart from the King James Version. That is not found in the gospel. That is not only not a gospel, that is a false gospel. It is heretical. We can't add in our pet peeves. And I know I say this from time to time, but it's good to remember so you can say it to somebody else. When you have something that you think needs to be done in order to be saved, I want you to take that and see if it fits into John 3.16. We're going to use the King James Version just so that people can get this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has everlasting life if he also reads the King James Version. Okay? It doesn't fit. Okay? Whoever believes and reads the King James Version will have everlasting life. Whoever believes and supports Israel will have everlasting life. Whoever believes and whatever it is, whatever your pet peeve is, insert it into John 3.16, see if it fits, it won't, and then just go back to John 3.16 and believe it. God sent his son and he made it so simple for us to simply accept by faith. Don't add to the gospel, okay? Don't add to God's word at all, but okay, um, once again, it's uh, uh, belief is free will. It's not placed in man uh, externally, and faith is not considered to work. Therefore, the truth of Scripture indicates from the first pages of Genesis that man has been granted free will. That's evident as it can be right on the nose of your face, uh, face of your nose, whatever, uh, in Genesis 3, um, granted free will, and that he must exercise that as a, that gift in faith. Okay, and that is seen when he named his wife Hava. It pleased the Lord that he did that, and he said, I'm going to impute to you righteousness. I'm going to make a picture of that by covering you. And what did he do? He got a, what did he cover them with? Fig leaves? Animal skin. And what does that mean? An animal died. A lamb probably. It doesn't say that, but an animal died in order to have its skin taken and covered. That's a picture of Christ's imputed righteousness. Christ had to die to cover us from our sins, okay? So all of that is found right there in the beginning of the Bible in chapter 3, okay? Further, this faith must be properly directed and in line with the revealed light which God has provided. The reason why I say that is because people say, I have faith in God, and that's true. You have faith in God. You believe in Allah. You're your brother went and blew himself up at a mall and killed a bunch of people, and you have faith that he's going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter if that's what you believe. If it is not true, it doesn't matter. So it must be properly directed faith, and that can only be found in faith in God's promise of the Messiah, looking forward to him or from our side looking back on him. Life application. Here we go. Life application. Doctrine matters. That's right. 3-7, please. But wait, let me open my Bible so that... Okay, 3-7. Oh, yes. Okay. Good. I was 
No, I, minutes for one verse. Oh, I mean, that's okay. That's because of all these guys asking all these questions and inserting their... Okay. Okay, seven. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Okay, this is a little different. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. They inserted the word only. It's not in the original, but they, they wanted to stress that to you. Okay, three, seven. What a knockout punch for heretics who say that we have to observe the law of Moses. The Galatians had fallen victim to the Hebrew Roots movement 2,000 years ago, and Paul shows them the folly of this. The words here clearly indicate that whether Jew or Gentile, one cannot trace their ancestry back to Abraham unless he lives by faith, not deeds of the law. Okay, let me make a note here. I want to make just a really quick note. Um, all right, make a Okay, read that again. The words here clearly indicate that whether Jew or Gentile, one cannot trace his ancestry back to Abraham unless he lives by faith and not by deeds of the law. Okay, and that is also seen in Romans chapter 2 about being a Jew. Does anybody know the verse I'm thinking of? Romans 2, Paul says, okay, he in Galatians is taking it back to Abraham as faith. But in Romans chapter 2, I think it's probably verse 14, but I could be wrong. Give me just a second. Romans 2, uh, it's, um, let's see here. Uh, who's in perishing? No, it's not 14. Do the things of the law. He does talk about the things of the law there. But then he says, um, indeed you, I know it's, oh, I got more down here. Um, it's verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, which is required by the law, and which was also required of Abraham, but long after his declaration of righteousness. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And once again, he's making a pun there, because the word praise in Hebrew is Judah, which is the name of the tribe. Judah means praise. And so he's making, you're not a true Jew unless you're circumcised in the heart. Okay, that's the point he's making. He's going back to the law to make that point. He's going back to Abraham here, but he's making the same basic point. Okay, um, where does it say in the Old Testament? I think it says it three times somewhere. Where does it say you must be circumcised in the heart? In the Old Testament. Okay, I don't think so. I, I, I think, yes, Jeremiah twice, I believe. Once certainly in Jeremiah, but the first one is actually in the Law of Moses itself. It's in Deuteronomy, I think, 32 in the Song of Moses, or uh, Moses is, uh, uh, anyway, it's right in that area where he talks about being circumcised in the heart. It might not be in 32, so don't make a squiggle there, but it's right there in Deuteronomy itself. Okay, so even in the Old Testament, circumcision of the heart was something that was understood by the people it may have been ignored but it was a precept that was given anyway um let's see here paul will continue to explain this and he will defend it but his words here alone show the stupidity of reinserting the law as a means of being justified before god abraham precedes the law abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness therefore the law had no bearing on his justification god was pleased with him because he trusted the word of the Lord. Because of this example, Paul says, therefore, in theology as in mathematics, one plus one always equals two. By diverting from the logic which Paul presents, the math is faulty. 
But when taken in the proper biblical context, we can know, as Paul says, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. If Abraham is Scripture's example for this doctrine, which he is, and if the law came after this example, then the law cannot be a part of it. In fact, it is opposed to it. And Paul will say that elsewhere explicitly. It is opposed to it. Paul will rigorously describe and defend what he means here. And he will also exactingly detail what the purpose of the law is. When he's done with his epistle, it will be shown that the faith of Abraham is to be the faith of the follower of Christ. It is one which says, I trust God's word with all my heart, and I don't need anything else added to it for me to stand justified in his presence. That's it. Trust in his word. His word tells of Jesus, okay? And therefore, that is what God is happy with. Just thought of another one because the Church of Christ adds this one in. It's not in John 3, 16, but we'll see if it fits. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him and is baptized shall not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't fit, okay? Any pet peeve you have, Church of Christ, you have to be baptized. And more, you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ. That's right. So there you go. It, don't add things into the gospel, all right? It is necessary, uh, not necessary, it is right to be baptized because that's what the Lord said for us to do because we are now making a public proclamation of the change that we have had within us, okay? And that's exactly, exactly the same thing as the Lord's Supper. It is a public proclamation of his death until he comes again. That's exactly right. So that's why we do these things. We don't need to take the Lord's Supper. It's not like something that the Lord says, if you don't do this, you're going to die. He does say that some of you have fallen asleep or have been sick and fallen asleep because you've done it wrong. But he's not going to call you home if you don't take the Lord's Supper. But he has commanded us to do so. Okay, in not taking the Lord's Supper, then we are being disobedient. Okay, there you go. And it's the same thing with circum. I'm sorry, uh, um, a baptism. Okay, it's, yeah, not circumcision. Same thing as baptism. Yes. Yeah, you said explicitly in the Old Testament three times. Yes. Did you say explicitly. Uh, uh, um, yes. Not inferred. In the heart. No, explicitly. That's circumcision of the heart is three times. Well, uh, let me read you Ezekiel. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe this is Ezekiel. That might be one of them. Go ahead. No. I gave you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And okay, that one that. would be implicit. That, that's, yeah, yes. that's inferred. Yeah, that, that's inferred. That, that's not it. It, it. He talks about circumcision of the heart, and I think that it's Jeremiah twice and Moses okay. once. But if you want, send me an email, and I'll remember to check that and give them to you. Anyway, no, no, no. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm certain. I'm certain it's three times in the Old Testament. Um, or I may be thinking of Paul's in the New, so that would be Jeremiah and Moses and Paul. But it's... That may be it. Anyway, um, uh, I said three in the Old Testament, and I could be wrong. So don't make a squiggle until we get that uh, figured out. But I'm not going to go looking for it right now. I could do it in 10 seconds with this, but I'm just we're going to stick to uh, what we're doing today. Um, uh, let's see here. Where was I? Okay, yes. Um, uh, it cannot be a part of it. In fact, it is opposed to it. That's the last thing I said. Paul will rigorously, I've said that as well. Um, I trust God with all my heart. I don't need anything else added to it for me to stand justified in his presence. Life application. Okay, both in Jesus' time and in ours, the very people who claim their ancestry descends from Abraham are the same people who have failed to see what scripture teaches about him. They are indeed impressed with their own attempts at earning righteousness, but they ignore the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Let us not follow such a perverse path. And I'm not saying all Jews are that way. I'm just saying that that is the nation until it calls on Jesus. That's where they are. That's the black and white fact of the matter. It's not anti-Semitic. It's truth. Okay, but they ignore the righteousness of God in Christ. Let us not follow such a perverse path. Have faith in Christ and in him alone. And that also follows with any Judaizers or Hebrew Roots Movement people that come and tell you you have to do these things. Okay, excuse me. Um, we're in 3.8 now. Let me turn to the page and go ahead. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Okay. Oh, keep going. All nations will be blessed through you. Okay, it's it's close. I'm not even going to reread it. It's close. They just use preached instead of announced and etc. But okay, um, let's see here. Three eight. As a reminder, Paul is writing to the Galatians who had been caught up in an ancient version of the Hebrew roots movement. They had been duped into believing that they would be more pleasing to God and could only stand justified before Him by observing the law and all of the practices of the Jewish culture. Paul has been demonstrating what a bunch of malarkey that actually is. In the previous verse, he said, Therefore know that only those who are of faith, of faith, are sons of Abraham. Now, building upon that, he turns to Scripture. In doing so, he does something extraordinary by personifying it and the Scripture foreseeing. He actually makes Scripture come alive as if it's a person and the Scripture foreseeing. He has made a connection to Scripture and its power to reveal the future. Obviously, it's given by the Holy Spirit through men of God, etc., etc. But he's taking it and he's personifying it, which is amazing to see. Okay, As only God can do that, he has definitely identified Scripture as God's infallible word. Okay, What it proclaims is the same as what God foresaw and then recorded for us. In this... He says that what Scripture foresaw was that, his words, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. However, the word justify is in the present tense. Therefore, it should say justifies the Gentiles by faith. In other words, at any point in all of history, the means of justification is the same. Enoch was not a Jew. And yet he is recorded in a favorable light as having pleased God. Okay? He wasn't a Jew, meaning he was a Gentile. Okay? The Jews came later. The Hebrews came later. He was just a guy. Ruth was brought into the fold of the covenant people by faith. And any person from any nation today is justified in that same means. By faith. Okay, just so you know that that's true. I said it earlier, and I might as well just stop. It's going to take three seconds to get there. And I'll read it, and it'll take two more seconds to get back to what we're doing. Okay, I made a claim, and I want you to know that uh, what I claimed is correct. So let me turn back one more page. Okay, it says there, um, no, I was on the right page, wasn't I? Let's see here, was I? Yes, um, uh, now, where are you? Come on, come on, Charlie, let's go back here. Moses, 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 by faith, Abraham, it's got to be on this page. Let's see here, Passover, the Egyptians, walls of Pharaoh. There it is, yeah, verse 31, Hebrews 11, 31. By faith, there it is, by faith, the harlot Rahav did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, I just typed a 
uh, sermon Monday on the law of Moses. And one of the things it says is that you shall not make a covenant with the people of the land. You are to utterly exterminate them. So I'll argue that what they did, the spies making the covenant with Rahab, was against the law of Moses. They're the ones that did wrong. But God accepted that anyway, just like the Gibeonites. Remember, they all came down and Joshua failed to ask the Lord. He violated the law of Moses in the process, and yet God used that, and the Gibeonites stayed with Israel for even the exile, and afterward, the Gibeonites are still mentioned. So just because Rahab is a woman of faith, and because she is brought into the covenant people through that faith, it doesn't mean that what the spies did was correct. He told them, you are not to make a treaty or a covenant with these people at all. You are not to cut a covenant with them. So I, I don't want to say that dogmatically, but I'm pretty certain that that uh, was not the right thing to do. Even though they did it and it was the wrong thing, God still used it for good. Just like he did with every other bad thing that Israel or individual people throughout the Old Testament did. And he continues to do today. He uses our mistakes and he brings glory to himself through it. So there you go. That's just an argument, and I'm still working on the sermon, so don't go making a brain squiggle on that. But I just, I, after reading that, I, I can't find any qualifier that says you can do it to save a life or you can do it for any other reason. He doesn't give any qualifier. Now, I'll obviously be going through Deuteronomy more, and maybe there's a qualifier I haven't thought of, but I ain't seen it. So um, here we go. Let's see here. Um, God foreseeing uh, Enoch. Okay, we saw Enoch was not a Jew, and then I mentioned Ruth. In what scripture foresaw concerning this, it preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. The gospel is the good news. And so this is what scripture foresaw. The good news would be proclaimed. The hint of this is found in the words to Abraham, which said, In you all the nations shall be blessed. This is actually a mixing of two verses, Genesis 12, verse 3, and Genesis 18, verse 18. Taken together, they give the sum of what Paul is now citing. What he is saying is that all nations shall be blessed in the same way that Abraham was blessed, which is by faith in the promises of God. In other words, it is not saying that the nations will be blessed through his posterity, meaning Christ, but rather that the way in which Abraham was blessed is the same way as the Gentiles would be blessed. It's the way. Okay, not speaking of Christ in this, it's the way of being justified. It would be through faith, meaning now you enter Christ, meaning faith in Christ. Abraham believed God and he credited to him for righteousness. Okay, it is faith in Christ, but faith is the means of obtaining that and Christ is the object of that. Okay, so this is certain based on the next verse to be analyzed. It is true that this faith was only made possible because of the coming of Christ, but faith is the object of what Paul is speaking of. Faith in Christ is the explanation of the type of faith necessary to have proper faith. As I said, we have the Muslims that do things. We, I think I cited in last week's sermon, was it, or recently, the Japanese did the same thing. Okay, son, Go die for the divine wind, okay? Your emperor needs you, and you're going to be given a spot in paradise and all that kind of stuff. And so here they go with their, you know, kamikaze flights right into the side of a, a ship. The only thing they did was kill a bunch of people and themselves, and they got nothing out of it, okay? Because wasted faith, misdirected faith is wasted faith, okay? It has to be properly directed. Life application. If we stand justified by faith in Christ, then we are not justified by works of the law. Therefore, 
Reinserting the law is a rejection of Christ. Don't reinsert the law. Instead, trust in Christ alone for your right standing with God. Okay? Everybody see that? Read it again. We, if we stand justified by faith in Christ, then we are not justified by works of the law. Therefore, reinserting the law is a rejection of Christ. He will say that explicitly before he finishes this book of Galatians. He will say that, I tell you, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ no value. He is of no value to you. The New King James Version says it will profit you no. nothing. That's right. Okay, 3-9, please. Okay, oh, wait. First, yes, first, I, go ahead. Listen to your advice and always read your footnotes. You yeah. mentioned two of the Genesis yeah. references to that. It was, you said uh, 12-3 and 18-18. I think so. 22-18 is also in Genesis. 22-18. All right, what did they say there? The, those were the first two, and so that's all that's necessary. But if he said it in Genesis 22:18 as well, then uh, that's yeah. that's great. In your seed, all the nations. Oh, there you go. That's right, and that will be repeated again. It'll be repeated to. Uh, uh, it'll be repeated several times, but that's right. Okay, so the substance of it is also in 22:18. You said 22:18. Okay, um, three nine. Nine. Okay, past paragraph. Here, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham. The man of faith. Okay, that's a little different. This one said, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You said the man of faith. This one says believing Abraham. Okay, verse 3, 9. This is a modification of verse 7, which said, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In the near repetition, Paul is emphatically stressing the connection between those who believe apart from works with Abraham, the great hero of Hebrew faith. This is because the Jews traced their lineage back to him. He was the first person noted as a Hebrew. Does anybody know what chapter that's in? Because I've already said it during this class. It was Genesis chapter, comes right after 12 and before 14. Anybody? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and you know, here I've said that, and watch me be wrong. I am certain it's Genesis 13, but here I'm saying it, and then somebody's going to say, Charlie, you're an idiot. It's actually in Genesis, you know, whatever, but we're going to check that right now. If you just type in the, the word Hebrew, that'll come up, or we can find it right here. Abraham, uh, let's see here. I, I've said it twice. I better make sure that I'm right about this, because if I'm not, that's really embarrassing. Abraham the Hebrew. That's all we need to know. Um, uh, walk here, Abraham. Afterward, let's see here. Abraham, bring her. Uh, uh, come on. I'm not seeing it, so uh, just type in the keyword Hebrew. You, you, you can do that, can't you? What's that? I got my numbers backwards. Thank you for correcting me. 1413. Okay, so I, I, I made a mistake. Isn't that something? But we got it corrected. I knew I should check that. Once I said it twice, it is 1413. I knew there was a 13 in there, and that is my mental dyslexia, which goes right along with my reading dyslexia, which you see every Sunday when I uh, read a sermon. But uh, there you go, 1413. I'm so glad that we got that corrected because somebody would have checked and they would have said, you're such an idiot, Charlie. Okay, which is true anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, let's see here. Um, this is a modification of, yes, um, in the near repetition, Paul is um, uh, emphatically stressing the connection between those who believe apart from works with Abraham, the great hero of the Hebrew faith, noted in Genesis 1413. This is because the Jews trace their lineage back to him. 
He was the first person noted as a Hebrew, and he is who the Jews look to for the beginning of what constitutes their cultural life. Paul shows, and actually, you know what? It's kind of funny that that's the case, even though it is correct, but where does the word Semitic come from? Shem, that's right, the son of Noah. So when you say you're being anti-Semitic, well, guess what? The Arabs are Semitics too, all right? They're, they're from Shem, okay? So it's kind of funny that they have this, they co-opted this for themselves and nobody else, but anybody who's of the line of Shem would be considered a Semite. So what all right? would be the correct slur? I don't know. I'm not even going to go there. Not even going to go there. Yeah. Um, Paul shows that not all who are from Abraham are actually of Abraham and do not possess the blessing he did. And those who possess the same faith as he did, which predated the law of Moses, are counted as being blessed with him. Taking verses 7 and 9 together, the truth is revealed that those who possess his same faith are blessed in him and they are also blessed with him. Because of faith in the promises of Christ, we become a part of the same family stemming all the way back to Abraham. Concerning the two words, with and believing, Vincent's Word Studies gives a reasonable analysis of what they are referring to. The word with, not equals, like or as, but in fellowship with. Believers are regarded as homogenous with Abraham and thus sharing the blessings which began in him. That's the word with, and then Vincent goes on, the word believing. Those who are of the faith are one in blessing with him whose characteristic was faith. Abraham was his noted characteristic, his faith. When we exercise faith, we are in the same faith with him. As long as it's properly directed faith, once again, misdirected faith is wasted faith. Life application, and we got time. If one is relying on works of the law to be pleasing to God, then he is not in fellowship with Abraham, the great father of the faith. He does not bear the same characteristics which he bore. Instead, his circumcision is merely an outward sign without any true connection to what made him righteous in the first place. Okay? Meaning Abraham, him, not the other person. The reason for this is that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. I'm going to make a note right now and say Abraham there because I don't want that to have something that I consider uh, ambiguous. Okay, as the law is the ended in Christ, the faith which he possesses in him, meaning any person who believes in Christ, is the same faith that Abraham possessed when he predated that same law. The promise was made. Abraham believed. The promise was fulfilled. We are expected to believe. Not to go back into the law. Abraham was not under law. We are not to be under law. We are expected to do what Abraham did and simply believe in the Christ who was coming. We believe in the Christ who has come. That's it. Okay, 310. My Bible yeah. reads Abraham the believer. Abraham the believer. And I like that. because I, You know, I just very infrequently use Christian. Right. I always say believer. Yeah, well, I saw somebody actually uh, arguing that we should never call ourselves Christians because it was used as a polemic in the New yeah, Testament. Right. Well, maybe it was, and so maybe it people. wasn't. You, you, Yeah, but you know what? You, you, even then, you cannot make that argument. You can say that it may be the case because in the context, it's saying if you're called a Christian and persecuted because of it, then maybe that was the case. But it also says that they were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch. Right. And so it was a positive thing. 
So I am not one to say that using Christian is inappropriate. That is, you know what Christian means? Christ. Follower of Christ, little Christ. Yeah, person who follows Christ. That's I all it means. say follower of Christ. Yeah. Just because Christian can be a loaded term in a Muslim well, it, context. Well, it can, it, and you know what, but I, I am not into semantics. Well, I am not going not either, to do that. But I want to be clear. I understand. I understand so that. When you are doing your they, job, that's correct. When they correct. say Christian, right. they equate what they see morally right. in our culture and that's fine. That's, with Christian, yeah. and that's not synonymous. No, it's it's Christian. not, but that's their that's their misunderstanding. It's it not is, ours. So that's yeah. why I say I, follower of Christ. Yeah, and that's fine, but I'm not going to do that, just so you know. I, I am a Christian. I the, It is a biblical word. It is not something that is unscriptural, but for her job, if you know her job, you know why she's arguing that, okay? I'm not into semantics with people. If they can't accept what I'm presenting them, that's their fault. It's not mine. I'm presenting them with the truth of God in Christ as a Christian. But Catholics so. can they, they lump that into Oh, absolutely, and everybody lumps us under Catholicism, right. everybody, exactly. the whole world yeah. sees us and they see Catholicism. And so that's what she's trying. That's the point that she's making. But to me, that's their problem. It's not mine. No. That's that's how I look at it. This is, this is what I go by. If somebody has a problem with it, all they need to do is simply ask, well, why are you Christian? You murder people. No, I'm a <laughs> Christian because, and then I can explain it to them. So uh, once again, no semantics. I, I'm not going to go down that route. Um, we had, what was it? Somebody did something a, a week ago with that. Um, uh, oh, I won't say who or what the context was, but somebody says, you should never say Christ. You should say the Christ because the Hebrew is Hamashiach, the Messiah. And so, and I, the person asked, is that correct? And I went back. Immediately, in one second, I took him to Jesus' prayer, and he says, Jesus the, Jesus Christ. He calls himself Jesus Christ with no article in there. And all the way through the New Testament, it says that at least 400 times, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. So I'm not, that's semantics. I'm sorry. If somebody wants to do that, it's because they want to feel more holy. They say, Jesus the Christ. That, does, that goes nowhere with me. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, called himself, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Good enough for me. If he can do it, I can do it. Lord Jesus Christ is listed many times. Uh, many times as well. Okay. If you want to get into long-winded talk, do that. That's fine. I me, Jesus is fine. I when I talk to somebody, I Jesus, you know, but if I want to say Christ, I'll say that. But once again, I'm not going to get into people arguing over that kind of stuff because they're all acceptable. And okay. Um uh, Ted, go ahead. Oh, wait, let me get there because I want to read what you're reading. I thought we'd already read it, so we got to... Oh, you got us off on that tangent. That that one was your fault. Go ahead, Ten. <laughs> All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do every written everything written in the book of the law. To do them. Okay, yeah, this this one is a little longer, but um, yeah, this this and this is right there. Cursed is... And let me read it again. For as many as are of works of the law, okay of the law are under the curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them okay and then i'm going to read the next verse we're going to analyze it later we're not going to have time to do it today but i wanted you to understand the context of this but that no one is justified by he just said if you cursed is everyone who does not do the things of the law and Paul goes on, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Okay. And as I say, week after week, 
the whole point of the New Testament, not the whole point, but a whole point of the New Testament is to show that, did I say new? I meant old if I said new. The Old Testament is to show after the giving of the law that nobody, nobody, nobody was able to do the deeds of the law. Even from the crossing over the Jordan and violating the, the, the law by making a covenant with Rahab, whether it was a good thing that came out of it or not, the end cannot justify the means they did wrong. And the same thing is with Joshua. They made the treaty, good things came out of it later with the Gibeonites, but they did not do right, okay? This is the thing that we need to remember about the Old Testament after the giving of the law, is that every single person in the Old Testament after the giving of the law died, meaning that they did not do the things of the law. And once again, I know there's an exception, Elijah, but it's not that he didn't die, it's that he was taken before death. So he's still alive, he will return, and he is going to die, and then he's going to be raptured up three days later or whatever, okay? But here we go, 310. The words of this verse seem harsh against the law itself, but this is not the case. One might ask, why would God give a law which then brought a curse? Paul will, in time, answer this. But what is obvious is that this is so. If one is under the law, there are certain requirements which must be met. However, it is obvious that none could meet them, as is to be directly inferred from the law itself. Leviticus 23, 26 through 32 prescribes a day of atonement for the people of Israel. It was a day which was given for the atoning of the sins of the people. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? If he, if he has a day of atonement, it means the people need atonement, okay? Uh, there it is. If the people did not sin, then such a day would be unnecessary. However, this day was not just for those who sinned and not for those who didn't sin. In verses 29 and 30 of chapter 23, it says, For any person, any person in Israel who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. If they had to observe the Day of Atonement, then that means what? God knew that they had sinned. Further, the fact that the tablets of the testimony were placed within the Ark of the Covenant and then covered with the mercy seat implies that mercy was required for what was contained within the ark. Remember, the high priest could only go in there once a year and not without blood, and then he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Why? Because it was a picture of the blood of Christ being shed for us. The tablets of the law were inside of the ark. Everything about that ark, if you don't know that symbolism go back and watch the sermons you will be amazed every bit of it points to jesus christ the tablets were put in it meaning that christ is the embodiment of the law he embodies the law and the mercy seat is the cover of it and that is the propitiation which paul speaks of and uh what's his name john speaks of in the new testament the hilasterion same word from the greek old testament of the uh, translation of the Old Testament for mercy seat is hilasterion. It's the same word that they say Christ is the hilasterion, the propitiation for our sins. It's marvelous what God has done by giving us the typology and then sending Christ. So we don't make the errors that we keep making. Anyway, 
Uh, the mercy seat implies that mercy was required for what was contained within the ark. If it were not so, then there would be no need for a mercy seat. And if it were so with us, there would be no need for our mercy seat, our hilasterion, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the what? The hilasterion. Therefore, semantics. Therefore, it was the assumption of the law itself that every person would require atonement each year, every single person in Israel. None were exempt from observing the Day of Atonement because all had broken the very same law which prescribed the giving of this day. This is why Paul then cites the law itself by saying, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He cites the substance, not a direct quotation, but the substance of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy 27 goes through a long list of curses for those who violate the law. It then sums up all of those curses with verse 26. Now, this is when they enter into the land. They are supposed to have uh, one group of people on Mount Ebal and one on Mount Gerizim. And they're supposed to say, cursed is he who does this. And then they say back, it's where they talk back and forth to each other. Okay. However, the listed curses of chapter 27 are merely a portion of all of the other precepts of the law. In other words, the curse of verse 26 is not limited to the list found in chapter 27. Those curses are one part of the whole law, and this law includes the Day of Atonement rites. Therefore, if a Day of Atonement is mandated, then one was required to observe it in acknowledgment of the guilt that they bore before God. If they didn't observe the day, maybe because of trusting in their own righteousness or for whatever other reason, then they were cursed for not fulfilling the works of, or the, yes, the words of the law. However, if they did observe it, there was the acknowledgement that they needed the atonement for not having observed the law. Either way, they stood guilty before the law. Therefore, the law itself was based on, begins with G, ends with race. Anybody? It was based on grace. Everybody got that? Because you had the Day of Atonement. The precepts of the law could only bring condemnation, but the law understood this, and thus it offered this annual grace. If one relied on works of the law, they stood condemned before God and were under a curse, exactly as it says in Deuteronomy. This doesn't mean that they weren't expected to adhere to the law, but that they were to not trust in their adherence to the law in order to be justified. They were to trust in the mercy of God. They were to adhere to the law, but that was not what they were to trust in. They were to trust in the mercy of God. That's the point there, okay? Um, they were to trust in the continued grace of God from year to year, the annual reminder of their sins. In the verses ahead, which we do not have time for today, Paul will continue to explain the purpose of the law and then detail the reason for Christ's coming in relation to that law. And we're going through the law right now, Deuteronomy. I typed up something on Monday, as I said. And by the time we get done with Deuteronomy, you're either going to say that was really great, and I'm so happy we did that, or we're going to say I'm so sick of law, I don't ever want to hear it again. It doesn't matter. It's something that we need to understand in order to understand what Christ has done. Just like we needed to understand the symbolism of the ark and the the uh, mercy seat and the uh, table of showbread and the menorah, everything pointing to Christ. If we don't have that before Christ comes, then we don't understand the, what Christ did. There, the book of Hebrews would be almost blank because he goes back to that symbolism to explain that this, yeah, this is fulfilled in him. So they could look at it and say, ah, I get it. 
and why people don't observe or uh, uh, you know look into the law, it's their loss. It's such a loss to not look into the law. Life application. Paul has noted that any who attempt to be justified by works of the law, meaning the law of Moses, are under a curse. If this is where you have placed your hope, Hebrew Roots Movement people, Seventh-day Adventist people, etc., then your condemnation is just. That is what Paul is saying. Put away your self-idolatry and place your faith in Christ's fulfillment of the law. You can't have sin not being imputed to you, 2 Corinthians 5.19, if you're trying to observe the law. Sin will be imputed to you. The point of Christ's coming is it so that sin is not imputed to you. Because if sin is imputed to you, you cannot have life. And if you cannot have life, you cannot have eternal life. And Christ came to give us both. He came to give us life and have it abundantly, and that life is eternal life. So this is why we need to make sure that our theology actually is straight, that we don't teach things that are false, and that we adhere as closely as possible to what God has given us in Jesus Christ without deviating from it in any way, shape, or form. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful lesson. This, the book of Galatians is just a marvel, and I'm personally so grateful we're going through Deuteronomy because we can see what he's talking about. We can see the condemnation that looms over the people with every turn of a page because of the law which is impossible for them to meet. And then the wonderful release that is given, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And Paul's going to weave that together for us very soon, is that Christ became a curse so that we could be freed from the curse of the law. Thank you for sending Jesus to hang on a tree for our sins. What a wonderful gift of grace that is. And help people that are listening to just accept it, to receive what Jesus has done, and to be filled with the glorious hope of all eternity in your presence because of that. May it be so, and may they choose that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Forget the president prayer. Oh, yes. You know what? Before I, I'm going to turn the, uh, the thing, and I'll do that right now. Don't go away if you're listening. We're going to go to break, and then we'll have a real quick...